This is an ABC podcast. G'day, beloved listeners. Look, you might have noticed I'm having a few days off and in light of the current problems that uh, former President Trump is having with the FBI, I thought we might take the opportunity to revisit an interview about another former president who had his issues with the FBI, Richard Nixon. In 1970, I came across a masterpiece by Gary Wills, his book called Nixon Agonostes. And by the time I finished this uh, very impressive work, my feelings about Nixon were intensified. On the one hand, I detested Tricky Dicky all the more, but on the other, I emerged from the encounter with an immense respect for his political talents. He was, in many ways, a dark genius. Now, 50 years later, a book of comparable quality on uh, on the gentleman. It's called King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, an American Tragedy. And it's by Michael Dobbs, former Washington Post journalist. And he has uh, available to him new historical materials, 4,000 hours of Nixon's secret tapes, the diaries of uh, Nixon's chief of staff, Haldeman, and the memoirs of uh, White House counsel John Dean, who was once in this very studio discussing his ex-boss with me. And he's turned these events into an unputdownable page-turner. I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Dobbs, who covered the collapse of communism as a foreign correspondent and launched the paper's fact-checker column. He's taught at Princeton and the University of Michigan and is the author of a Cold War trilogy and most recently, King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, an American tragedy published by our friends at Scribe. Welcome to the program, Michael. Well, thanks so much for having me, Philip. I'm delighted to be here. I wasn't sure why he'd called your book King Richard until I learned from you that his mother, Hannah, intentionally named all the boys after English kings, Richard, Arthur, Harold. That's right. She had great expectations for her boys. Um, And most of all, from her son, Richard. She always called him Richard, never Dick. In fact, when uh, people at school tried to call him Dick, she would correct them and say, I called my son Richard. And she had in mind Richard the Lionheart, the Crusader King. It might have been more appropriate if she'd been thinking of uh, Richard III, given his uh, notoriety for plotting, cheating, lies and corruption. Well, while uh, Nixon was president, that was the parallel that was drawn, but it wasn't the parallel on his mother's mind when she named him Richard. Michael, one reviewer, David Greenberg, disagreed with the assumption in your title that uh, his presidency was a tragedy because that implies a potential for greatness, which he argues uh, Nixon did not have. I take your view, but can you explain it to the listener? Well, I think you can argue that point. I mean, you don't have to like someone to think that uh, he qualifies as a tragic hero. And what really struck me was, you know, Nixon, he really is a self-made man. I mean, he's not like Donald Trump. He wasn't born on third base. He was born to a struggling um, family of grocers, Quaker grocers out in California. Everything he got in life, he had to struggle for. And then he finally achieved uh, the most powerful office in the world. And through his own flaws, he fell from this great height. And you may not like Nixon, but you're still sort of awestruck by, you know, the uh, scale to which he rose and the depths to which he fell. So in my mind, that qualifies as a tragedy. And of course, his uh, his unbelievable political skills that uh, that Wills wrote about, the way he, well, on the one hand, he opens... Uh, 
the Western world to China. He, uh, and then at the other end of the scale, of course, he, he uh, extended the Vietnam War for, for four years. Well, that's right. He, he could have um, probably uh, had a peace agreement in Vietnam much earlier, and a lot of people, both Americans and Vietnamese, were killed during those four years. But on the other hand, he did end the war. And we've seen in Afghanistan and Iraq that ending a war is not so simple. I mean, I think so you have to, you know, that's one of the many sort of contradictions about Nixon. I mean, there, there's a, you can certainly say that he should have went, ended the war much earlier, um, but he did end the war. So, um, you know, it's a kind of, you're constantly balancing these things. Quote, a shabby man without a moral compass, pinched of heart and cramped in spirit. But at the end, you say, I believe that only the most hard-hearted of critics will fail to feel any empathy for the pain of a man whose dreams turn to nightmares as a result of his own mistakes. Well, that was the feeling I came away with. I mean, I don't try to tell readers, um, you know, what conclusions they should draw from the evidence I present. Uh, I really rather sort of tell it like a novel or a, a play, and a playwright or a novelist doesn't, you know, he tries to draw his uh, readers into the plot and into the characters and leaves it to the readers to decide, you know, who they find admirable or who they find despicable. Um, and there's plenty of human life in this story and there you know, various conclusions you can draw from it. I think uh, I think you, your decision to focus on the hundred days from his successful second inauguration was sensible because it intensifies the focus. Well, um, I you know I didn't want to tell the whole story of Watergate or the whole story of Nixon's life. I wanted to tell the story of the fall of the president, and you begin. Um, you know, on the eve of his second inaugural, when he's really at the top of his game, uh, he's been re-elected by a thumping majority, still uh, has a 67% approval rating. Uh, he's uh, put Watergate largely behind him. Even my old newspaper, The Washington Post, is running out of leads to pursue. And then in the next 100 days, it all falls apart. So, thanks to the tapes or with the help of these tapes and all these other archival resources you mentioned, we can really follow this story from the inside, the unraveling of the presidency and the fall of a president. You've already mentioned his uh, poor Quaker parents. His father used belts and sticks on the boys and his mother was icy and controlled. Where, where Kennedy was a tribal Catholic, was Nixon a serious Christian because he went to church four times on a Sunday and read the Bible every single night? Right. He was certainly brought up uh, as to be uh, religious. I mean, he didn't talk about religion a lot in public, so religion was a private matter for him. And he told his aides that he, every night of his life, he knelt by the side of his bed and prayed. And um, so on the one hand, you've got this man who sort of uh, utters streams of blasphemy and, and numerous, um, you know, taking the Lord's name in vain. But on the other hand, um, he did have a very intense private faith. I think there's just another of those contradictions about Nixon that <laughs> are just there and um, cannot be altogether explained. I suddenly remember Nixon at the end of his career kneeling in the Oval Office, praying with a rather nonplussed Henry Kissinger. Now, Nixon inherited his dad's temper and yet became quite popular at college. Well, he was, um, you know, one of these kids at college who was sort of known for trying hard, um, particularly uh, on the football team. I mean, he wasn't actually very good at football. He's very clumsy. He later became... Uh, clumsy with his tape recording and other technological devices. But he, see, he lacked uh, much uh, athletic talent, but he had one great uh, talent, which was uh, that he always picked himself up. He would be knocked down and uh, on the football field. And however badly smashed up he was, he would pick himself up. So he became a kind of team mascot. 
also at college, uh, he founded a uh, group of uh, a sort of student society that really represented the have-nots on campus. Uh, there was a society that uh, all dressed up in uh, dinner jackets and so on, and uh, Nixon founded the opposite society, which was meant to be the society of the jocks and the have-nots, uh, who did everything the opposite way uh, to the um, to the in crowd, so that really was the um, political basis for his first campaign for student president. Michael Nixon was a loner in the White House. He would avoid confrontations by hiding out in another little office other than the Oval. Yes, his favourite room in the White House is called the Lincoln Sitting Room, which uh, is up on the second floor, uh, right at the corner of the mansion, the smallest room in the uh, mansion. And um, he loved to go up there in the evening. And uh, even in the heat of the Washington summer, sort of 100 degrees, he would have a set, have his valet set the fire and uh, would, and of course, the air conditioning was turned right up. So you had the air conditioning and the fireplace and Nixon would uh, gaze at the fire and uh, brood to the strains of victory at sea and other uh, classical music that he that he loved. Um, but he, he was, you know, this is really where he, as he put it himself, he did his best thinking up in the Lincoln sitting room. I've mentioned uh, Dean in dispatches. Let's go to Haldeman, who Nixon called his Lord High Executioner and told everyone to do as he says. Tell me about uh, his relationship with Haldeman. Well, Bob Haldeman was a former advertising executive. Actually, he'd worked for Walt Disney beforehand, and then he worked for Nixon, and he was really Nixon's nursemaid and psychotherapist and Nixon's buffer with the outside world. I mean, Nixon, you know, contrary to most politicians, he didn't actually like meeting people, so he used... uh, Haldeman as his means of communicating with not only uh, uh, the rest of the world, but his own staff. Um, And Haldeman sometimes would not immediately carry out all Nixon's instructions. I mean, if if he would judge whether Nixon was, you know, just sounding off and then he would delay implementation. Actually, I came away with quite a high regard for Haldeman. He is you know, had no political ambitions of his own. Uh, His purpose was really just to serve Nixon. And um, he did it, you know, he was really actually also the founder of the sort of modern White House staff apparatus, a very, he ran a very efficient White House with one exception. And the one exception was all these dirty tricks and uh, criminal break-ins and so on where the system that Haldeman invented completely broke down. Well, Haldeman was right to describe his boss as, quote, the strangest man I ever met, to which he added he was head and shoulders above the run of ordinary mortals. I didn't realise, well, Haldeman says that Nixon had a photographic memory. True? He had a great uh, capacity for detail and could sort of dredge up obscure... Uh, uh, slights and, uh, uh, you know, stories from 20, 30 years ago. He bored everybody with his his, uh, memories of the Hiss Affair. This was when he was a young congressman. Uh, He found a, uh, he pursued uh, a Soviet spy who had managed to uh, get high up in the White House. And this was really the foundation of Nixon's career. But Nixon remembers every twist and turn in this uh, scandal and would bore his aides uh, with sort of long recitals of the of the his case. And um, so I mean, that's just one small example. Nixon completely lacked charisma, as you point out. He was nicknamed Gloomy Gus and Iron Butt at college for the long hours he put in studying. But that was because nothing at all came easy to him. Yeah, I mean, he really was one of these people who achieved uh, what they did achieve by, you know, application, by study, by putting in long hours. I mean, his classmates at law school used to laugh at him uh, 
uh, that's where he got the uh, nickname Iron Butt for Iron Butt from, because while they were out having a good time, Nixon would be in the library, you know, studying his law books. He at one stage ordered Haldeman to uh, demand the resignation of every single member of his staff following Disraeli's autobiography that exhausted volcanoes need to be gotten rid of. Well, that was actually at the end of his uh, first term after his uh, uh, elect- election victory. Um, yeah, he was a student of Disraeli and the great um, Victorian politicians in, in England. And uh, he, I mean, on that particular occasion, uh, he demanded that everybody submit their resignations. But actually, uh, Nixon didn't like to sack people personally. It was very painful to him. I mean, he would get Haldeman to do it, but he couldn't bring himself to do it himself. And when it came to people who were very close to him, including Haldeman, it was extremely painful uh, for Nixon to uh, part with them. I've always and you been, see, uh, sorry, sorry, I've always been haunted by Mrs. Nixon, who seemed to me to be the most fraught, taut and unhappy of women. What was their relationship like? I think she's probably got a, a bad press. I mean, she was called Plastic Pat by the press. I think that's a little unfair. Um, you know, she was, I mean, of course, a very sort of conventional American housewife. Um, uh, she was uh, from an Irish, uh, American Irish family. And um, she, you know, sacrificed herself to Nixon and her family. But, um, you know, I think there was actually more to Pat than uh, some of the observers uh, gave her credit for. I think, you know, she grounded Nixon and you know, one thing I was struck by was the contrast between, you know, the profanity that Nixon used with his aides and then suddenly Pat or one of his daughters had come on the line and he turns loving and um, caring. So, you know, this is another contradiction of somebody who, uh, you know, could be absolutely ruthless uh, in public, but um, he, you know, was a, a good family man in the end. I wonder if Nixon's inability to find a way of relaxing outside the presidency might have played a part in his problems. No golf, no fishing, etc. Right. Well, the presidency was his hobby, actually. Um, You know, he loved the ritual of the presidency and uh, he invented Ruritanian-type uniforms for the White House guards, which were roundly ridiculed. Um, You know, he loved all that. but curiously, he didn't. He was also very restless. Um, one of his aides said, "You know, it's surprising that somebody who spent so much time trying to get into the get to the White House didn't want to spend much time in the White House. Or as soon as he was there for a couple of weeks, he would want to get away somewhere. And he's always, you know, rushing off to Camp David or his um, uh, holiday house in Florida, or he had another." retreat in out in California um, overlooking the beach. So he's always, you know, he just couldn't stay in one place, actually. He's very, very restless man. There's a revelation on every other page of your marvellous book, Michael, including the fact that, like Trump, he spent a lot of time under a sun lamp to maintain the illusion of health. Right. Well, he did, you know, he didn't play golf because he thought it uh, took too much time. What he did like to do was go out with one of his buddies, a guy called Bibi Rebozo, who lived next to him in in Florida. He liked to go out on a boat and acquire a tan. And when he was back in Washington, he preserved this tan by, he had an aide carrying a, a sun lamp around in a briefcase, but they couldn't <laughs> use it too much because he turned red. But, uh, so... Yeah, that was an echo that uh, has a modern-day resonance. It certainly does. Now, Nixon, as we've pointed out, was re-elected in 73 with the biggest margin of popular votes of any president at that time. His response, and he confessed that later, was to be overwhelmed by melancholy. How extraordinary. Yeah, well, for Nixon, you know, the... Whole, everything was in the struggle, the struggle to to get out of a crisis. And when he actually, or the struggle to achieve some goal that he'd set himself, 
And when he actually achieved this goal, um, you know, he was unfulfilled. And he writes about this in his book, uh, Six Crises, that, uh, you know, the most thrilling part for him was being in the middle of a crisis or being and figuring a way out of it or, uh, you know, taking a big gamble. Um, and then he would feel his sort of heart pumping and, you know, he would, most of these crises, he managed to extricate himself. I mean, Nixon, uh, Watergate was the crisis he did, was unable to extricate himself from. But once he had achieved his goal, he then feel, he then sort of is kind of is deflated as he admits himself. And I think that happened to him after this smashing re-election victory in 1972. He then rather let it drift after that. Talking to Michael Dobbs, this is LNL on Radio National and Michael's the author of King Richard, published by Scribe. He's admired for his triumph of opening up to China and also won the respect of the foreign policy crowd whom he tended to hate as an elitist band of snobs. Well, he hated them, but he also wanted their respect. And um, to a certain extent, you know, particularly with his foreign policy, with the opening up to China, which probably only Nixon could have done. I mean, first he had the imagination to do it, but then because he, you know, was a conservative, a Republican, it was easier for him to do it, to open up, to talk to the communists than it would have been for a, a democratic president. But he then used that uh, to you know, leverage um, detente with the Soviet Union. So he was sort of playing all the angles. And some people say this was, you know, the brilliant Henry Kissinger. I disagree. I think it was Nixon who was establishing the strategy and Kissinger who was implementing it. Well, of course, Kissinger took uh, or stole some of Nixon's thunder in the quest but Nixon was set on claiming the role of peacemaker to achieve, as I recall, a peace with honour. That's what he wanted in Vietnam, yes. But it's worth mentioning this rivalry with Kissinger because I think it was very significant. I mean, Nixon was furious when Kissinger got much of the credit for ending the for a peace agreement in Vietnam. Uh, Kissinger was seen by some in the press as the peacemaker and Nixon as the warmonger. And one of the reasons why Nixon you know, uh, did all these recordings was that he wanted to write his memoirs and set the records straight and put uh, uppity aides like Kissinger in their place by having a very complete uh, uh, record of everything that had taken place that he, he, must, he would control. He must have been thrilled to bits when Kissinger uh, shared the front page of Time magazine for Man of the Year. I think thrilled to bits is uh, not exactly how uh, he would have put it. He was, uh, went into a furious rage when he heard about that and it, he really turned him against Kissinger. Um, I mean, Kissinger, of course... You know, Kissinger was a, an accomplished psychophant, but uh, and he's constantly, you know, flattering, sucking up to Nixon. But at the same time, he's sucking up to all the journalists who Nixon, uh, who many, several of whom are on Nixon's enemies list. So Kissinger is playing absolutely all the angles, and Nixon is well aware of this and is very suspicious of Kissinger. We hear on the tapes clear evidence that Nixon could be anti-Semitic. Did that complicate his relationship with Kissinger? I think he excluded uh, Kissinger, and he had uh, several other Jews on his staff, actually, uh, who he had a high regard for, so he kind of excluded them. He... I guess he considered them honorary Aryans, but uh, yeah, <laughs> his um, his uh, his his tapes are full of the most terrible, not only anti-Semitic remarks but generally racist remarks and slurs, uh, you know, that are, would be completely unacceptable these days. What was his attitude to the the gains of the civil rights movement? Well, actually, he. Um, was probably fairly progressive for his time. I mean, he reached out to Martin Luther King at a time when, um, you know, it was difficult for American politicians to do so. So he, I mean, you know, he, on the one hand, they were not a natural ally for him, but he was not, uh, and he played the race card 
but um, he was not, I mean, his, his actual record of governing was not anti-civil rights, I would say. You've mentioned that his rivalry with Kissinger was a part of the motivation for the taping system, but I hadn't realised that Kennedy had also used a similar system during the Cuban Missile Crisis, as did LBJ. Right. Well, that's true. I wrote a book about the Cuban Missile Crisis called One Minute to Midnight, and I drew on all um, uh, JFK's tapes. And the difference between uh, Nixon and his predecessors was that they limited their taping uh, to meetings they thought were significant, or in LBJ's case, his telephone calls, and they pushed the recording button. And Nixon was so inept with um, technology that he couldn't trust himself, and his aides certainly didn't trust himself to start a recording. So they came up with this um, sort of what they thought at the time was a wonderful idea of having the recording machine start by itself. <laughs> Um, whenever he walked into a room or picked up a telephone. And uh, as a result, you know, not only was there, is there much, much more uh, Nixon tapes than there were tapes of, uh, of uh, LBJ and Kennedy, but more importantly, Nixon didn't control those tapes. I mean, they, the tape recorders just began running, and uh, he f- in the, uh, often forgot that the tape recorder was running. So there's... It's a kind of cinema verite of everything that was happening in the in the White House. And Michael, you've actually played all of them or most of them? I can't claim to have played all of them. I've played the most significant ones. I mean, some are virtually unintelligible. There are whole armies of archivists uh, at the National Archives in the United States who have, you know, listened. I mean, to get one hour of transcript... Uh, the professionals calculate that you need to listen for 100 hours. So uh, for somebody to listen to all the tapes, it would take several lifetimes. <laughs> and uh, I must confess, I no. didn't do that. I, d- I did listen to the most significant, hopefully the most significant ones, and particularly the, one- the telephone ones from the uh, Lincoln sitting room late at night when he's sort of ruminating. And those tapes are very easy to understand and they have some of the best lines on them because it's late at night and he's uh, sort of talking about the you know everything that's happened during the day. Okay, let's look at Tricky Dicky now. Uh, Chuck Colson, a confidant, and uh, Mr. Can Do, who would have Teddy Kennedy followed and get photographs of him with uh, young women circulated when and when chasing down Watergate, Nixon had orchestrated challenges to the renewal of the Washington Post parent company's lucrative television licence. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, I mean, they actually, this is a very difficult time for the Washington Post, and uh, not only because they were politically under siege, but they were just taking the company public, uh, the new owner, Kay Graham. And uh, when the Washington Post published the Pentagon Papers, uh, Nixon was furious and Kissinger was furious and they, uh, and particularly after Watergate, um, Nixon set loose his attack dogs, particularly Chuck Colson, against the Washington Post. So actually this uh, opening scene that I have in the book on the eve of Nixon's second inaugural, among other things, they're talking about how they're going to drive down the share price of the Washington Post and Colson is boasting that he's managed to get it down 10 points, 10%. And Nixon sort of mocks sarcastically, says, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And uh, but then, you know, he's obviously very happy to hear it. There are so many pre-echoes of, uh, of Trump in your book, and one of them comes to mind. Uh, do you remember when Nixon said to David Frost in 77, that when the president does it, it is not illegal. Right. Well, that was his, um, you know, belief uh, that uh, he had, I mean, to some extent, you know, he did have a a beef against his predecessors because uh, people like Kennedy um, and to a lesser extent Johnson had used the FBI to gather political intelligence against their enemies. And uh, Hoover, the head, the longtime head of the FBI, decided he didn't want to be in that game anymore. So when it came to plugging all these leaks 
um, you know, Nixon, he was una- felt he was unable to rely on the FBI, so he had to set up this unit inside the White House called the Plumbers. And uh, they were uh, actually run by Colson, who, you know, set them off pursuing Nixon's enemies and uh, organizing a whole series of break-ins culminating in Watergate. I think it's important to note that even today, there's not much credible evidence that Nixon ordered the Watergate break-in or knew about it in advance. Right, well, Haldeman says that uh, Nixon didn't order the Watergate Watergate break-in of the Democratic National Committee, but he certainly caused it because he was constantly demanding political intelligence against the Democrats. And so then his his uh, underlings just took the ball and ran with it. You know, it was rather like um, King Henry II in England and uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas a Becket, and the king says, <laughs> who will rid me of this turbulent priest? And uh, the knights go out and murder the Archbishop of Canterbury without the king really being aware of what is happening. But the king, you know, they think they are fulfilling the wishes of the king. And you see the same kind of dynamic in the case of the Nixon White House. I'm just looking down the, 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 the stars of this era, this Haldeman, of course, Magruder, uh, John Mitchell. Remind the listener of the wonderful outfit called Creep. Well, Creep is an acronym um, It was uh, which... Uh, stood for the committee to re-elect the president. So, um, again, you know, this very efficient uh, team at the White House, they sometimes sort of, you know, overlook the most um, uh, obvious things, including, you know, giving their re-election committee the initials creep, um, which, of course, you know, became um, uh, a popular meme in, in Washington at the time. Um, but it was Creep that hired people like uh, Gordon Liddy, uh, and um, they managed the break-in of the uh, Watergate on Nixon's behalf. And that was in May 1972, and Liddy's blokes planted bugs in two of the offices. Right. The Actually, I was there last night, um, a, a friend of mine lives in the Watergate. There's a um, apartment complex and there's a office block and the Democrat National Committee had their headquarters in the uh, office block on the sixth floor. And uh, actually it was, you know, one of these places where it's probably the last place where you would find the Democrats keeping their innermost secrets. But, um, you know, they imagined that by bugging a few phones um, in these offices, they could gather dirt and gather intelligence on the Democrats. So that was the purpose. And they went in twice. And um, the first time, one of the microphones, a very expensive piece of equipment, didn't work. So they had to go in a second time. And they were caught red-handed, <laughs> five of them. Okay. After after Liddy and uh, McCord are found guilty of bugging, uh, at Watergate, the U.S. Senate approved a resolution to establish a select committee to investigate Watergate by uh, a remarkable vote, 77 to none. What was uh, Team Nixon's response to that? Well, uh, I mean, it was at precisely this time that uh, the whole conspiracy is falling apart. And I would give the credit, actually, not to the Congress and not to the press, but to the judge, John Sirica, who just didn't believe the explanations he was being given by the, uh, by the people who were standing trial, including the burglars and their leaders, who said it was just our idea that we went into the Watergate. He was convinced that there was somebody higher up, must have been giving orders, and he was determined to get to the bottom of it. And uh, he managed to... Um, you know, drive a wedge between those defendants and one of them turns uh, state's evidence, um, starts cooperating with the prosecution and says that, you know, perjury has been committed in this trial. And that is the really sort of crucial stage at which this very disciplined White House 
begins to fall apart and they all start turning on each other and then they turn on the president. So it was John Dean's uh, test and test evidence to the Senate inquiry was the nail in the coffin? Well, that's a little later on, yes. I mean, after the this, um, uh, you have the White House aides turning on each other and, of course, uh, Dean uh, betrays the president and then he's hauled before Congress and gives a, you know, one of Dean's strengths um, is that he, he also has an incredible memory and uh, although he didn't have his own tape recording machine, he was able to reconstruct a lot of uh, his meetings with Nixon from memory. And um, he gave gives a long statement lasting an entire day to the uh, Senate Select Committee, at which he you know, accuses the president of being the mastermind of the cover-up and uh, talks about the president approving um, hush money for the burglars. But then it's Nixon's word against Dean's. And it might have remained that way had it not been for the revelation that Nixon had a secret tape uh, recording system. And it was the tape recording system that really settled this argument. Who was telling the truth, Dean or Nixon? Now, Nixon has to instruct Ehrlichman and Haldeman to resign. And once again, he's down on his knees seeking God's guidance. Yep, he... Uh, you know, at these crisis moments, he gets out of Washington. He actually goes to Camp David. Um, he's trying to sort of struggle uh, with himself. Um, I think this is, you know, the, of all the crises in his life, this is the most serious one. He gets down on his knees and as he later says, he hopes he doesn't wake up the next morning um, and summons Haldeman and Ehrlichman to... Camp David to tell them that they have to go. This is the only way of saving the presidency. Um, but he himself is thinking of resigning at this time. Well, um, he, he also know. says at that meeting where he cries uncontrollably that he had been praying for death to come. Right. I mean, there was something political, you know, always with Nixon, he's playing the political angles. And he says that to Haldeman, um, you know, I thought that I should be the one who resigned or I even sort of thought about not waking up in the morning. But by do it, saying that, I mean, he probably did feel like that. But he's also, uh, you know, it's part of his sort of pressure on Haldeman to feel sorry for him, Nixon, and uh, for Haldeman Ehrlichman to, you know, to resign gracefully uh, and to resolve this crisis by refocusing it from... Haldeman and Ehrlichman to Nixon. So there's sort of several levels of, you know, you can interpret that in several, that episode in several different ways. You reveal that uh, Nixon offered to financial support to Ehrlichman to pay for those mounting legal bills and uh, his response was, you can do one thing for me, just explain all this to my kids, will you? Tell them why you had to do this and then he turns and walks out the door. I had no idea that Ehrlichman kept his own secret tape recordings. Well, towards the end, everybody was taping each other um, in secret because they all wanted the, uh, to get the evidence that, uh, you know, they were not responsible for Watergate or they were not responsible for you the cover-up. You mean cover that up. they were wearing wires or they'd sort of secreted microphones all over the place? Uh, no, but they would phone each other up, and they would have the uh, the phone the 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 tape machine going. Ah, right. Or in some cases, they would bring somebody into their office and have a dict uh, start the dictaphone. But yeah, I and mean, this is one of the things I hadn't really understood before: the extent of the paranoia um, as the whole thing fell apart, and uh, the number of tapes—not just Nixon's tapes, but Haldeman's tapes, Ehrlichman's tapes. You know, everybody was was taping each other at the end. Tell me about uh, the taping of leaks from F Mark Felt to Woodward and Bernstein. Well, Mark Felt was the uh, deputy head of the FBI. And uh, we found out many years later, actually, when he was almost uh, on his deathbed, that Mark Felt was the secret source 
for the Washington Post. The, fa- uh, the famous he, Deep Throat. He was known as Deep Throat, exactly. But uh, Woodward and Bernstein, actually he was Woodward's source rather than Bernstein's source, but Woodward said he wouldn't reveal this until after his the death of his source. But in fact, it, in the end, it was Mark Feld's family that revealed it. Um, you know, that was just one of the twists in the story that only became public knowledge um, a few years ago. So here's Nixon contemplating death, and yet he addressed Americans on national television and supported a new attorney general to pursue the case wherever it leads. And he said, there can be no whitewash at the White House. Was that uh, a surprising thing to do? Well, he was trying to cut his losses at this point. I mean, actually, he goes up to his uh, to the Lincoln sitting room afterwards and says, I'm never going to talk about that son of a bitch Watergate thing ever again. And, um, of course, he had to talk about Watergate again. I mean, he thought that he had limited the damage by sacrificing the two people who were closest to him. But really what it did was to trigger a whole series of revelations culminating in the revelation that he had been tape recording uh, his meetings in the White House, which was really um, the instrument that led to Nixon's own downfall. The book is King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, an American Tragedy by Michael Dobbs, and this is Ali Nell on Radio National. Now, Dean testified about the wiretapping of reporters, and this is something I'd forgotten, a plot to bomb the Brookings Institution. Tell me about that. Well, that was uh, to get some documents about the Pentagon Papers, uh, the secret official history of the Vietnam War that Nixon thought uh, was in the Brookings Institution, a prominent Washington think tank. And actually, that was a crime that Nixon did authorize. Uh, uh, But curiously enough, his orders weren't carried out. I mean, Nixon said, you know, break in, do it illegally if necessary. Uh, but uh, Liddy came up with a wild scheme to break into the break, uh, to, to cause a bomb, fire bomb the Brookings Institution and then pose as firemen, break in, uh, break the safe and steal these documents. Um, but uh, they ended up not doing that. So this shows how dysfunctional the White House was. Um, a plot such as Watergate that the president didn't directly order Uh, took place, whereas a plot that he did order was never carried out. So, you know, they were all at sixes and sevens with each other. Michael, let me now ask you a question that everyone was asking at the time. Why didn't Nixon destroy the tapes? Yeah, this is the last scene in my book, and it's an excellent question because, of course, you know, with hindsight we can now see that it was the tapes that led to his resignation, um, particularly after the Supreme Court ordered the president to hand over uh, the most incriminating of those tapes. But at the time, uh, this is in the summer of 1973, actually when the revelation about the tapes came out, Nixon is in hospital uh, with pneumonia, and uh, Nixon is trying to decide what to do with these tapes, and some of his aides are Uh, urging him to have a bonfire on the White House lawn. But he thinks that he can still control the tapes and he can use them against his enemies and he can leak them selectively and the tapes will be his ally. Of course, that was a terrible So to some extent, he he felt that he could be exonerated by them. He did, if he could control them, yes. There were bits on the tapes that he thought uh, he could use and leak selectively. Um, But You know, no president before, I mean, he thought they were his private property and that he misjudged the, you know, the Supreme Court and the Congress. He thought that he would never lose control of the tapes. Um, But that was a terrible miscalculation on Nixon's part, obviously. What was his mental state after after he left office, after he was evicted from the premises? Well, he was, you know, it was terrible... um, ordeal for him to leave uh, office. Um, And as he put it, he gave his enemies the sword, which they used to bring him down, and they twisted with relish in his open 
wounds and uh, you know he went through with his resignation but he became very ill um, soon afterwards but then and I think this is the difference between a Shakespearean tragedy the hero the tragic hero doesn't die at the end of the play he reinvents himself um, and his uh, interview with David Frost, which you mentioned, was part of his reinvention and relaunching of himself. You know, so there's a very kind and of to some American... and to some extent, it worked. It, it did, yes. I mean, he was given a uh, funeral with full honors, attended by four presidents in the National Cathedral in Washington, and uh, he sort of regained a reputation as being, you know, a master thinker on foreign affairs. So he became a respected elder statesman <laughs> at the end of his life. But as, um, you, so, but as you point out, he changed the world, he changed America, and in ways that have taken decades to reveal themselves. And I'm quoting, I'm quoting uh, Michael here, beloved listeners, we are still experiencing the aftershocks of his opening to China, and the remaking of the Republican Party as a voice for a silent majority who felt threatened by the upheavals of the 1960s. So, to a large extent, Donald Trump becomes possible in, in the, as a result of Nixon. Yeah, I wrote this book in the age of Donald Trump. And of course, although I you know, don't really mention Trump explicitly, there are lots of parallels but there are also contrasts. I mean, uh, some of the, much of the language that Nixon, uh, Trump used public, publicly, Nixon used in private. Uh, he railed against his enemies. Um, you know, he played the race card. He launched this. You know, he was very much identity politics and so on. But at the same time, they are also very different people. I mean, Nixon was a much deeper. I think, more substantive president than uh, Trump. And I think he gained a kind of his uh, tragic stature by, uh, you know, his effort. He achieved this uh, position through his own efforts and then he threw it away through his fatal flaws and he suffered greatly in the process. I mean, I didn't see Trump suffering greatly in the process, look, Trump. Um, will, Trump will never be seen as a tragic figure. He was tragic, a tragedy for America, but he doesn't meet right. the tragic requirements. I don't believe so. I think there's a distinction, a difference between him and Nixon. Do you think uh, where would you put George W. on the on the spectrum? Was he uh, was he closer to Nixon than to Trump? I think. I mean, George W., uh, to my mind, anything he did as president was overshadowed by a terrible mistake of uh, invading Iraq, which I think was a historical mistake. And uh, America is paying for this mistake for a generation. So, you know, whatever, I mean, the things you can say positive about George W., but to my mind, it's completely overwhelmed by this terrible foreign policy uh, blunder. You make the point that Nixon rose to the top of the greasy pole and was almost entirely responsible for his fall to the bottom. And you make a point which I find quite fascinating, that together with Harry Truman, he was one of the most ordinary of American presidents. Right. I say that, you know, actually his first political campaign slogan was one of us. And, uh, you know, people could identify with Nixon uh, against the Eastern establishment, against the elites. Um, Nixon played that uh, card very successfully. Um, I say that he was, you know, had the virtues and the failings of ordinary Americans, but more so. He worked harder than anybody else. He hated people with more passion. Uh, he rose higher and he fell lower than anybody else. So he, But these are American traits that he had. And for good or for, for bad, I think, you know, Americans can identify themselves with uh, Nixon. And there's a lot of 
the American character in Richard Nixon. And the paradox is this, that the most private and secretive of presidents should leave behind the most detailed and revealing of historical records. Well, yeah, and that's something that uh, Nixon obviously never intended. Um, you know, he th thought that his tapes were for his own private use. Uh, of course, he wanted to write history for, for himself. He thought that, uh, you know, he took after Churchill in that respect. Uh, Churchill says, history will be kind to me because I intended to write it myself. And Nixon he he was actually quite a good writer his memoir is uh, is by uh, the standards of the presidential memoirs i think nixon's memoir ranks pretty high uh but nixon thought he could control his place in history uh he was interested in history and he very much regarded himself you know in a line of great men of history and he aspired to people like churchill and charles de gaulle and but uh, in wanting to write history, uh, as he wanted people to, uh, you know, to read about it, um, he committed what turns out to be this tragic error of keeping a verbatim record. I've been um, sorry. I've been talking to Michael Dobbs, who is the author of that wonderful book. Uh, one minute to, to midnight on this occasion. The book is King Richard, Nixon and Watergate, an American tragedy. Thanks very much for giving me so much of your time, Michael. Well, thank you, Philip. It's been a pleasure to be with you. And that's your lot for the week. Thanks to the team, E.P. Anna Whitfeld, Anne Arnold, Taron Priadko, Catherine Zingara, and sound engineer Hamish Camilleri. Oh, and thanks, Ellen Fanning, for filling in earlier in the week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.